Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the Dow Jones Industrial Average managed to put in a new all-time high today, but it's the only major stock market index that finished in the green. Most of them or all the other ones were down. S&P only down a little bit, being helped out by some of these industrial names. But the Nasdaq was down almost a half a percent. Russell 2000 was down just over 1%. If you look at some of the sectors that continued to get beat up, uh, making new 52-week lows. So even though the headlines are probably going to be about the Dow Jones making another all-time record high, Beneath the surface are a lot of stocks that are having a lot of problems. You know, even Morgan Stanley, which managed to finish the day unchanged, hit a 52-week low today. So now you have some of these banking stocks hitting new lows. I've been talking about the home builders in bear markets. The auto stocks continuing to go down. General Motors down another 2.6% today, another 52-week low. Some of the retailers really getting beat up. I'm going to talk a little bit more about why that is the case later in this uh, this podcast, but a lot of negative news that is going to be masked uh, behind the headline of the Dow Jones. And of course, a lot of the, the, uh, the positive talk is going to be related to Donald Trump and this new trade deal that he negotiated. And I'm going to get to that uh, up next, but I want to just keep talking a little bit about the markets and what happened today. You know, oil gave back a little bit of the gains that it registered yesterday, down about 25 cents, but we still closed above $75 a barrel. We went above 75 yesterday. We were up over $2 a barrel. We almost traded at $76 a barrel this morning, a new four-year high. This is going to continue to compound the problems for the U.S. economy, for the consumer. I already talked on a prior podcast how Americans are already cutting back on their driving because they can't afford the increasing cost of gasoline. Well, gasoline is going to get a lot more expensive. Of course, we know that interest rates are going up. Prices are going up across the board in this economy, and it is going to weigh heavily on the economy, I think, in the years ahead. Gold actually had a decent day today. We managed to get back above uh, 1,200 again. We closed around 1,202, 1,203. Very strong day in the uh, gold mining sector. Some of the emerging market stocks bouncing back today. Even though the dollar was still slightly positive on the day, we're starting to see a little relief coming in uh, to that sector. But, you know, I think the fact that oil is still this strong 
even when the dollar index is still above 95, in fact, we're just above 95 and a half, and you've got oil prices above $75 a barrel. Remember, I was talking about $80 oil. My forecast in January of this year, you can go back to the podcast that I was recording back then when oil was barely above 40. I thought we would hit 80 before the end of the year, and it looks like that forecast is certainly going to pan out since we've already hit 76 almost, and we have three months left to get to 80. In fact, I think we will trade into the 80s. It won't be 80 will be the high. I think we're going to get into the mid-80s, and who knows? We could even get above 90 briefly. I don't think we're going to hit 100 this year, but I do think we're going to be above $100 a barrel in the price of oil next year, especially if I am right about where the dollar is going to go. And in fact, I believe that if we see a real bear market in the dollar in 2019-2020, by the time the 2020 election comes around, oil prices could have taken out the high price that they hit back in 2008, which was around $140, $150 a barrel. Now, if Americans are having a problem affording gasoline uh, when oils are in the 60s and 70s, imagine how much more difficult it's going to be to fill up your car if you're looking at $140, $150 crude oil. Well, that's not going to be just a, a fantasy. That is going to be reality. You know, there was an interview today with Jay Powell. I was watching part of it on television. I forget where he was speaking, but I, and then there was a, a Q&A, and he was talking about the economy and, and how great it was, and everything was perfect, and we've got low unemployment, and we've got low inflation, and you know he seems to think that everything is going to continue that way, and he was asked if he was worried about rising wages and if that was you know a harbinger of higher inflation and he said no he's not worried that uh, wage increases are going to translate into higher inflation and in a way he's right it's not the wage increases that are going to cause the inflation the wage increases are being caused by the inflation it's all the money that's being created that is pushing up prices which includes wages which is the price of labor. So wages are rising just like other prices are rising, just like oil prices are rising. These prices are going up because of inflation. So you're looking at all these rising prices and you're saying, well, are these rising prices going to cause inflation? No, the rising prices have been caused by inflation. The price is going up. That's showing you that there's inflation and inflation is going to get worse and worse. And of course, the Federal Reserve is not going to be able to do anything about it because of the enormity of the amount of debt that we have. You know, we went over, I think last week, the national debt finally exceeded 21 and a half trillion. You know, we're making a beeline for $22 trillion. But as these numbers get bigger and bigger, of course, it's going to be harder and harder uh, for anybody to pay the interest on the debt or certainly for the federal government uh, to pay the interest on its debt. But yeah, I want to uh, get back and talk about Donald Trump's uh, new trade deal. And you know, when Donald Trump was a candidate for president, he said that NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, right, was the worst trade deal ever negotiated by anybody at any point in, in world history. It wasn't just the worst trade deal that America got into. It was the worst trade deal that anybody ever got into. Now, I don't know how many trade deals uh, Donald Trump actually studied and whether he compared them to NAFTA or not to know that NAFTA was worse than any other deal that had ever been negotiated, but that was his claim. And in fact, even in the ceremony where he was taking credit for the new deal that he negotiated, he repeated that NAFTA was the worst deal ever, ever negotiated. And then he unveiled his deal, which he is now saying is the greatest deal ever negotiated. So we went from the worst deal in the history of deals to the best deal in the history of deals. The problem is it's basically the same deal. I mean, the only thing that's really changed is the name. And we went from a good name to a lousy name. And the funny thing about it is Donald Trump is claiming that the name is better. The old name was NAFTA. The new name is USMCA, USMCA. USMCA? What kind of name is that? I mean, you can't even say that. You just got to say USMCA. I mean, North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, that's actually a pretty good name. I mean, Donald Trump is out there saying that this new name has a good ring to it. Ring? To, it doesn't have any ring at all. I mean, it sounds like a little kid made it up. USMCA? I mean, why do you want to say, every time you want to talk about this deal, you basically have to say USMCA. 
instead of NAFTA. So basically, we went from having a nice name to having a ridiculous name. But the bottom line is that's probably the most substantive difference between the two deals is that now we have a lousy name because pretty much it's the same deal. Yet this is the greatest deal in history and the old deal was the worst deal ever. This is standard operating procedure for Donald Trump, right? Everything is great now that he's president. When he ran for office, it was an economic wasteland, right? America was broke. Uh, the politicians had sold us out. We had squandered our wealth, right? He was being, he was going to make America great again because we were no longer great. Well, now that he's president, all of a sudden America's great. There's no difference between America today and America before he was elected. All the problems that he pointed out are still here. They haven't been solved. I mean, if anything, those problems are now bigger than ever. You know, all the economic numbers were fake when he was running for office. Now those same numbers are not fake at all. All he does is tout how great the numbers are. You know, the same thing with Obamacare. He talked about how he was going to get rid of Obamacare, and now he pretends he got rid of it, even though it's still here. The only thing that's changed is we don't have the individual mandate, but we still have Obamacare. We just now have a greater moral hazard for healthy people not to buy health insurance. So it's just going to destroy the insurance uh, industry that much quicker. But unfortunately, now when everything blows up, instead of the disaster being blamed on the Democrats, it'll be blamed on the Republicans because they tinkered with it. And now, you know, since they messed with it, you know, they broke it, they own it. Right. But the problem was it was already broken before they broke it again. But now, you know, when it fails, we're going to end up with socialized medicine. So this whole NAFTA thing is more of the same where Donald Trump pretended everything was awful and now he's made everything fantastic, but he hasn't done anything. I mean, I'm going to talk a little bit about this agreement because you hear all these reporters, you listen to Fox News. I mean, they're talking about this thing like, again, he just you know, invented sliced bread, that this is some kind of fantastic deal. It is NAFTA rebranded with a worse name. Now, the only thing that's probably a net positive is the stuff that was added to the agreement on intellectual property. And if you read through that and the protections that are there, I think those are, those are good. And that could have been passed in addition to NAFTA because that didn't change NAFTA. NAFTA didn't even have any of these provisions because it wasn't something that was included in the agreement. So this is kind of an amendment to the existing agreement. But if the existing agreement was the worst trade agreement ever and you're just adding something to it, you're just adding to the worst agreement ever. You're not changing it. So what you have to look at is the actual changes that were made to NAFTA because whatever made it so bad, they had to take away all that bad stuff, right? Because, you know, and then they had to replace it with some better stuff. But that didn't happen. I mean, there were some slight tweaks. One has to do with agriculture. And this is getting a lot of media attention because Donald Trump was making a big deal about the high tariffs on Canadian um, dairy products, which is true. They have very high tariffs. Uh, just like we have to hide tariffs on certain farm products because there are, um, you know, lobby you know, lobbyists that, that do this, like sugar, for example. You know, we pay a lot more for sugar than everybody else because of uh, government. Uh, but the Canadians are, are paying more for dairy products. Even though America still has a trade surplus with Canada overall in farm products, and almost all of the farm products that are going back and forth are going back and forth without any tariffs at all, uh, there are tariffs on uh, on dairy. And so based on this new provision, this new negotiation, uh, the U.S. is going to see a small increase in dairy exports to the United, to, uh, to Canada. I think that the uh, provision allows for the U.S. dairy farmer to maybe capture 2% or something like that. I forget 3%, 1.5%, I forget the exact number. But it's a tiny percentage of the Canadian uh, dairy market that Americans are going to be able to capture. So there is a small benefit here for dairy farmers. There's a small benefit for Canadian consumers who will get, you know, slightly cheaper dairy products. But overall, this is a tiny change. The vast majority is going to stay exactly the same because they're only opening up that dairy market. It's just a tiny crack. That's all it is. It's nothing. I think if anything, maybe it's going to, we're going to, increase our exports, you know, by, you know, uh, uh, less than 1%, you know, a half a percent, some tiny amount of, uh, of farm exports. 
That's it. That's not enough to take the worst agreement in the history of agreements and turn it into the best agreement in the history of agreements. The only thing that separates the worst from the best is you know, this tiny sliver of a small part of the, of the dairy market. Now, there's also some changes when it comes to automobiles. But this is actually where we made the agreement worse, not better. Right? The, the, the adjustments that Trump made with respect to automobiles actually make the deal a little worse than it was. Not that the deal was bad. I mean, I like free trade, right? In fact, we don't need an agreement to have free trade. We just have free trade. The problem is without an agreement, we won't have free trade because all the politicians will slap on tariffs because it's politically uh, you know, in their self-interest to do so. Even though it's not economically in the self-interest of their nation, that's not why laws are passed. They're passed because certain special interests lobby to get them passed because they benefit at the expense of the broader economy. But when you tie everybody up to an agreement, then you prevent you know, even worse stuff from getting passed. So NAFTA was a positive in that without NAFTA, we probably would have had more tariffs and less free trade than we had with NAFTA. But what Trump has changed with respect to automobiles is he has made trade a little bit less free and a little bit more protectionist. And all of this is going to be a negative for the U.S. auto market. That's why I mentioned earlier, General Motors hit a new 52-week low today. The auto stocks are lower than they were when Trump announced this deal. So if this deal is so great for our automobile companies, why are their stock prices continuing to fall? The answer is because it's not a good deal. It's a bad deal. And here's the difference between the new NAFTA and the old NAFTA, right? So the old NAFTA said that in order to qualify for zero tariffs on automobiles, and if you don't qualify for zero tariffs, there's a 2.5% tariff. I mean, it's not the end of the world. It's not a huge tariff. But to get no tariffs, then at least 62.5% of the parts in the car had to be manufactured within North America. We've now changed that to from 62.5% to 75%. That's the only difference. I mean, that's not that big a deal. Now, the extra twist that Trump added is that starting in 2020, at least 30% of the work that is done on the cars that don't have the 2.5% tariff must be done by workers that are making at least $16 an hour. So basically, it's like a minimum wage imposed of $16 an hour on 30% of the work done on these cars. But that's it. Now, it's not a huge change. I think it's a small change for the worse. I think as a result of this, the American automobile industry will end up being a little less globally competitive than it would have been without this tweak. And so over long run, you're going to see fewer sales of American cars. Uh, you're going to see more work done outside the United States. You know, there's going to be fewer automobile jobs than there would have been without the tweak. This is not this fantastic deal. I mean, Trump is out there talking about this is going to create a boom for American manufacturing. No, it's not. American manufacturing is going to boom. The bust is going to continue. The trade deficits are going to be much bigger following uh, this agreement than they were following NAFTA. I mean, he's acting as if all the trade problems are going to go away. He keeps talking about the enormous trade deficits that the U.S. has run after NAFTA. Well, the trade deficits that we're going to continue to run after this deal are going to be even bigger than the ones that we were running after NAFTA. Not that this deal is causing it, because this deal doesn't do anything to uh, solve the underlying problems that were causing the deficits, because the deficits weren't caused by NAFTA. Right? The deficits were caused by other issues that Donald Trump is failing to address. But the bigger issue is here you have Donald Trump out there claiming credit for this fantastic deal that's revolutionizing the U.S. economy. This fixes all the problems. And this is all nonsense. This is all a theater. This is all a show. This is pure politics. And it shows you that Trump is not talking about reality, right? It's all hype. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's all pretend everything was a disaster before I was elected and now pretend everything is phenomenal. Everything is great, right? I've made America great, but the problem is keep America great is not going to be a slogan that is going to work in 2020 when this economy is mired in recession. And because Donald Trump has already claimed credit for this economy, 
He's going to have to accept the responsibility for the implosion of the economy, for the recession that is obviously going to arrive long before uh, voters are in the polls uh, in 2020. Well, when I spoke about the stock market earlier in the podcast, I wanted to mention shares of Tesla, which had a big jump yesterday. I think about uh, 14, 15% in one day. They gave back a few percent today, but I wanted to talk about it because I spoke about Tesla on my last podcast. And that's because Elon Musk had uh, made the mistake of refusing to go through with a deal to avert an SEC lawsuit based on his tweet about taking the company private at $420 a share and having already lined up financing. And when I heard that he was going to fight it, I thought it was a big mistake. And of course, the market didn't like it because the stock dropped about 14, 15% on the news. And so I thought this was going to be a a major mistake because I know from experience that you want to settle. I mean, even if you didn't do it, right? I mean, if you're completely innocent, if you're going to stand on principle, fine, but you're going to spend a lot of money. And especially when you're talking about shareholder money, it's not even your money. And so why risk all that shareholder money? Because even if you win, the cost of exonerating yourself is probably more than the cost to settle. And of course, if you lose, then not only do you have to waste money defending yourself, but then you have to suffer an even bigger penalty because when the government asks you or gives you the opportunity to just accept uh, a settlement and pay the fine, if you don't and you make them take you to court and win, then what you end up paying is a much higher number than if you just would have written them the check in the first place. So I remember thinking that this was going to be a negative for the stock going forward, given that uh, Musk was going to fight this thing out. Well, apparently somebody got to him. I mean, I don't know, maybe he listened to my podcast or maybe somebody he knows listened to my podcast or maybe he got some good advice from somebody completely unrelated to this podcast. But whatever happened over the weekend, I think by that Sunday, he had already changed his mind and decided that he was going to pay up. And I think it was a $20 million fine that he was going to pay, another $20 million fine that Tesla was going to pay, and that was that. And I thought that was a smart move, and the stock went up. But that doesn't mean Tesla investors are out of the woods. Uh, Tesla still has a lot of problems. The stock is still extremely uh, overpriced. They have a lot of debt. Uh, And, of course, we're heading into a recession, and that's going to, uh, you know, be another problem for all the automakers. That's why, you know, Ford and GM are also uh, hitting lows. Uh, Tesla is going to have a similar problem in that Americans are already broke. They have record auto debt already, and they're not going to have the ability to buy new cars. You know, another stock, though, that was in the news today is Amazon. Jeff Bezos came out and announced that going forward, Amazon is going to increase its own company minimum wage to $15 an hour. I'm not sure exactly when it's effective, but at some point, uh, everybody that they hire or everybody that they pay, uh, they have to pay them at least $15 an hour. And of course, this is because Jeff Bezos was getting a lot of flack from Bernie Sanders in particular, but a lot of people on the left that he's this horrible guy. He's the richest man in the world. He's making millions and millions of dollars every day. But some of his workers are paid such a small amount of money that they have to get food stamps and things like that, as if you know he's this greedy guy and he's refusing to pay his workers uh, a fair wage. The reality is he is paying his workers a fair wage. I mean, first of all, Amazon employs a lot of people. Some of them make a lot of money. And some of them don't make much money, but there's a big difference. The people who make a lot of money contribute a lot to the bottom line, you know, or, you know, or to mitigating the losses. They, they add a lot of value. They are doing things that require a lot of skills and a lot of knowledge. And so they are paid commensurate with their productivity and their skills. But also Amazon hires a lot of people that have minimal skills to do tasks that don't require a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience. And that's great because people now have the opportunity to jump on the job ladder. They, there's a bottom rung there for people that have limited skills to you know, a- acquire an opportunity to increase their skill level and to make some money. But now what Jeff Bezos is saying is, well, you know, we're only going to hire people who can do work that is at least $15 an hour worth of value to the company. Otherwise, we're not going to hire them. And, you know, 
Amazon is already moving. They are outsourcing a lot of their work. I mean, I had ordered something on Amazon, I forget, a couple months ago, and the product came defective. And so I called up and I got through very quickly, very you know efficient customer service. But the person I was speaking to was somewhere in Southeast Asia. Right? They weren't Americans, so they already employ a lot of people. doesn't matter what the U.S. minimum wage is. It's not going to impact their outsourcing when they're hiring people in other countries. They have a lot of robots. They're doing a lot of automation. Right? Jeff Bezos keeps talking about how Amazon is going to open up all these stores, and they're not going to have any people in them. Right? They're just going to be all automated. They're not, there's not going to be anybody there. So what difference does it make if he says that you know, we're going to pay low-skilled workers $15 an hour if they're not hiring? any low-skilled workers. That's ultimately what's happening. I mean, Jeff Bezos isn't doing this because he's some generous guy, right? You know, he's and he's not crazy. I think he's crazy like a fox. I mean, in the short run, yes, this will be negative for Amazon initially. But in the long run, this is great for Amazon because what Jeff Bezos is going to do once he becomes the poster boy, he is going to help lobby to increase the minimum wage for everybody, right? Amazon is doing it voluntarily, but he wants the government to force his competitors to do it too. And his competitors aren't in the same situation, right? They don't have the the resources to invest in robotics and automation. They're not outsourcing. There's a lot of small mom and pop stores that actually are hiring human beings. And if you force these small companies to pay the $15 an hour minimum wage that Amazon in many cases isn't even paying because it's not even hiring locally, a lot of these small companies are going to go out of business. And that's great for Amazon because their competitors go away. And eventually, of course, Amazon has to charge more money because they have to make a profit eventually. They can't just you know, operate on revenues in perpetuity. So one of the ways that Amazon can help ensure future profitability is to use the power of government to wipe out all of their competitors by forcing this high minimum wage that they can't afford to pay because they actually have to hire people when Amazon that's just utilizing machines and outsourcing doesn't have to hire that many people and they have massive money anyway. I mean, they can afford to lose money. They just sell stock. But these mom and pop stores that are barely surviving, you try to cram a $15 minimum wage down their throats, they're gone. I mean, that's why so many retail stocks are falling today too, because this is bad news if the minimum wage is going to get driven up. And that is exactly what is going to happen because now they're going to say, well, Amazon is doing it. Everybody else should do it. And Amazon is going to spend money. They're going to pay off politicians to say, raise it for everybody. If we can do it, everybody else can do it. But it's not one size fits all, right? Amazon is a size unto itself. Just because they can absorb this doesn't mean that your average retailer can. And Amazon knows this, right? That's why they like the whole concept of collecting taxes and internet taxes because they, you know, it's the smaller companies that are going to have trouble uh, complying. Amazon has the economies of scale. So nobody can compete with their economies of scale because they're so massive. So big government helps big business. And one of the ways they help big business is by crushing their smaller competitors, by increasing the barriers to entry, making it harder for the small firms to stay in business. And so as more and more you know, brick-and-mortar retailers go out of business, well, that will make it easier for Amazon to charge more money in the future because there'll be less competition. In the meantime, what's going to happen to low-skilled labor? Right? These jobs are going to be lost. What good is a $15 minimum wage if nobody is collecting it because everybody's unemployed? This is a bad deal uh, for workers. It's going to mean fewer jobs. It's a bad deal for consumers because it's going to mean higher prices. But that is not how it's being reported on. This is like supposedly good news, right? Wages are going up. You know, maybe they'll say, hey, this is great. Look, see, Trump is delivering higher wages. This is not good news. Uh, and when people start getting fired, they're not going to realize why. They're not going to blame it on the increase in the minimum wage, uh, but that is what's going to be driving the uh, the uh, the job losses. And of course, right now everybody thinks it's great, right? Because you know we've got this so-called recovery, but believe me, the next recession is going to be exacerbated dramatically by the increases in minimum wage that have already taken place, right? During this so-called recovery, the real pain will be felt during the next recession. Maybe people people don't notice how much damage is being done 
uh, when the economy is supposedly growing, but you notice all the damage in the next downturn, except people don't understand how to connect the dots. They don't necessarily blame the big increase in unemployment on the increase in minimum wage. Now, one of the places where the minimum wage does a lot of damage is here in Puerto Rico, where I'm recording my podcast. And the reason the minimum wage does so much more damage in Puerto Rico is because the federal minimum wage is the same in Puerto Rico as it is in uh, the other in the 50 states, even though the per capita income is generally half of what it is in the poorest state. So it's effectively a $15 minimum wage here. And, you know, we have you know, a labor force participation rate that's dramatically low any other state because we've priced so many people out of the labor market. You know, it's funny, the governor of Puerto Rico was just in Florida and he was endorsing the Democratic candidate for governor in Florida and some other Democratic politicians. And he's down there and he's trying to encourage all the Puerto Ricans who have moved to Florida to vote Democrat. And I'm thinking, hey, you know, maybe this is kind of like a Jeff Bezos. Maybe he's, you know, crazy like a fox. Maybe he knows by experience, right, how big government can screw up an economy, right? If you get some big socialist Democrat in there who starts raising taxes and you know, cranking up government, he can wreck the Florida economy. And if your goal is to get Puerto Ricans to move back to Puerto Rico, well, you want to go to a state like Florida where a lot of Puerto Ricans live and try to screw up that economy so that they have to leave Florida. And if they have to leave Florida, maybe they'll come back to Puerto Rico. So maybe that's one of the reasons that he wants to help, you know, the left take over Florida so some of the Puerto Ricans will come home. And, of course, Florida is also a tax haven, right? I mean, in in competition with Puerto Rico, there are a lot of people when they're moving from the high-tax states, they move to Florida. Well, if we can make Florida a a higher-tax state and make it, you know, less appealing to people who are looking to move to a warm place with beaches that has low taxes, well, maybe some people will move to Puerto Rico, right? If you're a tax haven, if you can eliminate the competition, like Bezos wants to help eliminate competition by driving the small competitors out of the market with a high minimum wage, if we can turn Florida into a higher tax state, well, then that's one less state that's, that Puerto Rico has to worry about when it's competing for wealthier individuals who are looking to relocate to a warmer climate. It's like, hey, well, come here to Puerto Rico. Although probably the craziest story that came out in the last couple of days, and I talked about this once before, is this now law that Jerry Brown signed in California requiring publicly traded companies incorporated in California to have female board membership. And and, and depending on the number of people on the board, there is a minimum required number of women that needs to be on the board as well. Of course, this is horrible government, right? Trying to micromanage the people who sit on boards of publicly traded companies or any company for that matter. But of course, if investors want to own stock in companies that have female board members, they can do that. I mean, they can sell stock. They can simply look around and try to find which companies have women on the boards and they could just buy those shares. But investors are not going to invest their money based on the gender of the board. I mean, the boards are there to protect the investors. I mean, that's why we have boards. Right. They're there to hold the management accountable and to represent the interest of the investors. So we want the most competent people on the board. I mean, if you're investing in a company, you want to know that the board of directors is doing the best job. You don't just want a board of directors that's got women just because they're women. I mean, if the women are the most qualified to represent the interest of the shareholders, then fine. You know, we can have women. And in fact, if there's a board that's all women, well, that's fine. And if it's all men, I mean, it's just whoever is going to best represent investors. But to come in there and say, we're going to force you to put someone on the board who may not actually be qualified, but they happen to be the right gender. Now, the crazy thing about this is, you know, California is already trying to be so liberal and open minded that they're, they're saying that there's no such thing as gender anyway. Right. I mean, you are what you identify as. I mean, you're only, you're a woman if you say you're a woman. Right. They're, they say that it's discrimination to try to just assume gender just because somebody has certain chromosomes. Right. Or or certain sex organs. They're a man or a woman based on what they feel like they are and what they represent. So if that's the case, why are they even doing this? I mean, what if there's a company that has a guy on the board who identifies as a woman? Does that count? Right? Or are they going to say, no, that's not really a woman? Well, isn't that discrimination? How can they say that some guy isn't a woman if he thinks he's a woman? And, and you know, what if there's a board that's all female? I mean, are they going to say, well, you got to have a male on there? 
No, they're saying it's fine if boards are all female. They just can't be all male. Well, now they're discriminating. You can have all of one sex, but not the other. None of this makes any sense. You know, I'd love to see somebody challenge this. Have some, you know, board not hire any actual women, but say, yeah, we got this guy Frank, and Frank's a woman. You know, and just ask him. He'll tell you he's a woman. You know, and how are you going to say he's not? I mean, you're going to question Frank, and you're going to question the legitimacy of his femininity? And, of course, I thought there's more than two genders anyway. I mean, California is now saying that there's only two genders. I mean, I thought there's supposedly, you know, a whole bunch of different genders. Why aren't they required to have members of each and every gender, right, on a board? Why just male and female? I'm not even sure the names of these other genders, but I'm pretty sure there's now more than two, even though, you know, biologically there's only two. As far as California is concerned, I mean, there's probably dozens of them. So why don't they have to have a representative of any gender that anybody can imagine on a board? But, of course, anybody can claim they're a member of any of these genders. So this whole thing is ridiculous, but it's going to make California less competitive, right? There are fines that you have to pay if you don't have the women on the board, right? And so fewer companies are going to want to incorporate. Publicly traded companies are going to want to be in California. It sets a horrible precedent. And of course, like all this kind of gender-based, you know, quotas, it basically casts doubt on the competence of women who would have gotten the job anyway. So let's say a woman is on the board. Based on this law, you're going to think, well, she's not really, doesn't know what she's doing. She's just on the board because she's the token woman. Or, you know, if there's three women on the board because they had to hire three. Well, these women are only there because they're women. But th- if you're there because of your merit, then, you know, you, you have that stigma and you can't overcome it. So if you're a, a qualified woman, you don't want to get a job because you're a woman. You want to get the job because you're the best person for the job. And if you are the best person for the job, nobody's going to know it because they're all going to assume rightly that you only have the job because of your gender. And that assumption, does that mean somebody is discriminating against you or some kind of bigot or some kind of anti-women? Because you can make that assumption based on the law. The same thing happens with race. If you require a quota, if you say you have to hire a certain number of blacks, for example, and then a black gets hired... Well, you can assume that, well, without the quota, they wouldn't have gotten the job. And so they're not qualified, even though they may have gotten the job without the quota. It's possible that a black person is hired and that person was legitimately the best person for the job and they would have got hired anyway. But how do you know that? If you know there's a law that establishes a quota and says you have to hire people of a particular you know, ethnic group, well, then you, know, you could just make the assumption that that's why they were hired. So the, the racism... Right, if you want to call racism, is not a function of what people actually think on their own. It's a function of government. It's a backlash to the government policy. The government law is creating the racism, not the prejudice of the public. Without the laws, the public wouldn't be prejudiced at all. If they saw a black guy that had a job, they would just assume he got the job because he was the best candidate. After all, why else would he be hired? People hire the best. I mean, there's competition. Guy has a business. He's going to hire whoever's going to be the best. But if you know that there's a law that mandates that certain individuals be hired based on their ethnicity, well, then, you know, you're going to assume, well, maybe this isn't the best. This is this is not the best candidate. And and so that stigma is a a function of government. And then government's going to claim, well, there's discrimination, there's racism. The government is causing it. And this thing is going to backfire in, uh, in California, and it's going to cause more sexism as a result of this sexist legislation uh, that has been signed into law. Now, while I'm on the subject of sexism, I want to finish up this podcast again by talking about the latest developments in the Brett Kavanaugh uh, saga. You know, pretty much as a result of the evidence, or rather lack thereof, I think the Democrats are pretty convinced that they really don't have anything with respect to the actual case of sexual assault or attempted rape or harassment, whatever. They've really got nothing. In fact, if you look at the memo that was prepared by Rachel Mitchell, uh, who was the woman that the Republicans hired uh, to question Dr. Ford, and she is a veteran, a prosecutor, right, for sex crimes. So she understands 
you know, the burden of proof and, and cases and the merits of cases. And according to her memo, she basically says the case is, boils down to a pure he said, she said case, and it's actually very weak. It's weaker than your typical he said, she said case that, you know, isn't even going to get prosecuted because there's no real evidence to back it up, that basically all the evidence refutes her story and her own recollection is questionable. I mean, she never even spoke about this publicly until over 30 years after the fact. She has given conflictory accounts. She told her therapist a story that's not the same as the story she's telling now. So her memories are evolving and, and, and none of it even makes sense. So it's pretty obvious that there is nothing here when it comes to the allegations. And I've said before, I don't necessarily think that Dr. Ford is lying. I think something happened to her at some point in her life, obviously. Uh, but I don't even know that what she is remembering or what she thinks she remembers even happened. I mean, it never even made sense to me the way she described it, that, you know, there are two people in the room, you know, they're laughing hysterically. I mean, to me, if somebody is going to commit rape, A, they don't want an audience. They, don't, they certainly don't want a witness. So I wouldn't think that a guy would commit rape with another person, you know, watching, I mean, in general. And then why would you laugh? I mean, rape is a very serious crime. I mean, you could, you could go to jail for a long time. I mean, if you're raping somebody, I mean, I don't think, you know, somebody would be laughing about, hey, this is funny. We're, you know, it's not. I mean, to me, what's more likely was happening is maybe you had a couple of teenagers who were horsing around and they were, you know, they were rolling around or wrestling and maybe they had no idea that Dr. Ford thought the way she did or she was just worried. I mean, I know she says that he put his hand over her mouth, but maybe he didn't or whoever was doing it. Uh, maybe that's just how she recalls it. You know, maybe she built this whole thing up in her mind into something that was much bigger than it actually was. I mean, maybe that's why nobody actually recalls it because it, it was only in her mind that there was something nefarious going on. If other kids were just horsing around or playing around, I mean, she said nobody tried to kiss her. You know, the guys didn't, you know, take their clothes off. I mean, so the whole thing could be a misunderstanding that was just built up in her mind. And this thing has been going on for 35 years. And who knows, you know, how, how more, how much, you know, she's embellished it over the years, you know, kind of like that game of telephone, except she's been having it with herself in her head for 30 years. And maybe she's been building this whole thing up and making, making it more significant than it really is. But, you know, I think that the Democrats are now appreciating that they really have got nothing on Kavanaugh for what he did, you know, 35 years ago, 36 years ago. So they're now want to make the whole thing about what he said as a witness. And did he lie? And in particular, did he lie about his drinking, right? They're all saying that, oh, Brett Kavanaugh lied because he downplayed what an alcoholic he was. Because now they're bringing up people, and it's not even that many people, but you get a few people who apparently you know, knew Brett Kavanaugh uh, in college, and they're saying, oh, I remember Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, yeah, that guy was stinking drunk. I remember him. He was slurring his words, or he was stumbling, and oh, yeah, he was, you know, he drank a lot. One, apparently, they dug up an incident where he was in a bar in New Haven after a concert, and either he threw beer or ice in some guy's face. I don't know why. And then a fight ensued. Um, I think the other guy who got the beer thrown in his face started the fight, but the police came in. Kavanaugh wasn't arrested. He didn't do any time. There were no charges filed. Uh, but now they're trying to say that he lied because he didn't disclose all this information about his drinking. You know, he, he didn't admit that he drunk so much that, you know, he slurred his words or that he got into a bar fight. I mean, why would he even admit all this stuff? He wasn't asked any questions about it. The only question that he was asked about his drinking was, did you drink to the point where you blacked out? And he said no. He didn't say he didn't drink to the point of getting drunk. He admitted that sometimes he drank too much. He admitted that sometimes he drunk and then he fell asleep. The only thing he denied is that he didn't black out. And nobody, none of the people who are coming forward saying that, you know, they knew him in college and he was drinking, not a single one said, and he experienced blackouts, right? Blackouts are a very specific thing and nobody has said it. So he didn't lie at all when it comes to his drinking, but they want to turn this whole thing into a referendum on Kavanaugh 
and that he was such a huge drunk, and now he's lying about it because he wasn't honest, because they have nothing else, so this is all they got. And this is a bunch of nonsense. I mean, who cares how much he drank when he was in college? I mean, first of all, these people that are claiming that you know they saw Brett Kavanaugh drunk, I mean, these aren't his good friends. These are people that only saw him at parties or at bars. Well, I mean, of course he's going to be drinking. Everybody was drinking. They were probably drinking too. Look, everybody in college drinks. I mean, that's basically why people are there. I mean, the, the degrees are worthless. I mean, so people are there just getting drunk. Look, I don't drink a lot today. I'm not a big drinker, but I do drink socially. I drank a lot more when I was in college than I drink now. You know, I mean, so what? I mean, I didn't drink in high school. Apparently, you know, Brett was a, a bigger drinker. I mean, I probably had, a, you know, a little bit to drink, but I drank a lot more in college than that I drink now. I mean, I drank at least, at a minimum, three nights a week because I went out Thursday, Friday, and Saturday every time because Thursday nights, that's when the fraternities had all their parties. And, you know, I wasn't in a fraternity, but, you know, I went to the parties, and that was Thursday night. I remember most kids, when you did your schedule, you didn't even want any morning classes on Friday because you knew you were going to be wasted from Thursday night. And I remember one semester, my best semester, I arranged my schedule so I only had classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I had, you know, I had plenty of time to party that semester. Uh, but then on Friday night, Saturday night, I always went out. I went to a bar uh, in, you know, a cam around campus, or sometimes I went into the city. I drove into San Francisco. I went to a bar. I went to a nightclub. Everybody was drinking. I mean, it wasn't just me. Everybody was drinking every place I went. And, you know, I remember I was mixing drinks in my dorm room. As a freshman, I had a I had a martini shaker. I remember making people martinis in my dorm room. Now, do I remember you know every martini I made? Do I remember every day that no? Because you know one day is just like the next. But I do remember specifically the one time I blacked out. It only happened to me once in my entire life that I blacked out from drinking. And I think that if it happened to uh, Brett Kavanaugh, he would remember it. And he said it never happened because it was a, you know, a major thing to me to have blacked out. Now, I'll tell you the story. It actually happened coincidentally in 1982, same time that Kavanaugh was supposedly you know, in that bedroom with, with, with Dr. Ford. It was right before the beginning of sophomore year. It was the day before the first day of classes. Right? I went to a party at a house and I got so drunk that I blacked out. I woke up the following morning on a floor, a hardwood floor, in a pair of sweatpants and a shirt that didn't belong to me. So I had been taken, all my clothes were gone, including my underwear, and I was in these sweats. And I had absolutely no recollection of what happened, you know, the night before. The only reason I knew about what happened is because people told me about what happened. One guy took a rather compromising photograph, which I hope no longer exists. And, you know, back then we didn't have cell phones. Right? So if someone had a photograph, they actually had to have a camera, and then they had to you know, get the film and take it to be developed and all that. But people told me what happened. And you know, I had been throwing up a lot, too. Uh, that's why they said they removed my clothes, because I had gotten a lot of throw up on my clothes. But I woke up, I mean, and I felt awful. I was totally hangover. I had to get in my car and drive back to my apartment. And that was the first day of school. And I didn't even go to classes because I was so wasted. And I just went into my room, closed the shades, went to sleep. And then I got woken up. I don't know, it was 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. There's a knock on the door. And my father just happened to decide to visit me at Berkeley with a friend of his. And, and there I am, completely hungover. And, you know, I forget what happens after that. But I remember a lot of the details. And the reason I got so drunk is not only was I drinking beer, right, but I, I had some shots of Chevis Regis. So it was the scotch mixed with the beer that is what caused the problem. But I still remember all this. I don't remember what happened because I blacked out. To this day, I don't have the memories of what happened that night. But I remember the, the, the circumstances because it was a memorable event in that it only happened that one time. And the people, I'm sure if you question the people who are around, they'll, they would remember it because, you know, they remember telling me all the things that I didn't remember. Because the only way I knew that I blacked out was because people were telling me about all the things that I did that I had no recollection of doing. And so if Brett Kavanaugh had actually drank into the point where he blacked out and had no memories, the only way that he would know that 
would be because other people told him about all the stuff that he missed. Where are all those other people? Where are the people who can say, yes, I remember this circumstance where uh, uh, Brett Kavanaugh blacked out, or I remember, nobody remembers him blacking out, but people only know that they blacked out because people describe to them what they no longer remember. And if you were at a situation where you didn't remember something and you were blacked out, you would remember people telling you all the things that you did that you have no recollection of doing. And I was doing some pretty stupid things according to what all the people were telling me. And I don't need to get into that. The point thing is that it happened to me and I recall it. And if it happened to Brett Kavanaugh, he should recall it too, but he doesn't because it did not happen. Now, of course, all right, so I admit it. I drank a lot when I was in college. I got drunk, right, you know, like everybody else, and I even blacked out. Does that mean that I'm disqualified for being on the Supreme Court? Not that anyone's going to nominate me anyway. I mean, does somebody want to fire me as their financial advisor because I got drunk in college and because one time I blacked out? No, because somebody that's hiring me, they're not hiring 19-year-old Peter Schiff. They're hiring a 55-year-old guy, right, who's grown up who has a lifetime of experience and who is a lot more responsible. I mean, I wouldn't hire my 19-year-old self to manage my money. And we're not trying to put 18-year-old or 17-year-old or 20-year-old Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court because he's not the same person. I mean, he's the same person, but he's a man. He's grown up. He's not a kid in college, right? And the amazing thing about Brett Kavanaugh is despite all of his drinking, he got into Yale. He got into Yale Law. Right. I mean, so that tells you that, I mean, he was a responsible drinker. I mean, he, you know, he, I mean, he handled his liquor a lot more than most people. Most people, you know, they drink and they don't, they don't go to these Ivy League schools. So, but this is all the Democrats got now. They want to act as if he covered something up. He admitted to drinking. He admitted to drinking too much. What else was he supposed to volunteer? He's not going to start volunteering stuff that he wasn't asked about. If somebody asked him, well, did you ever drink so much that you, that you stuttered? You, you know, your, your word, he'd probably say, yeah, probably. Did you ever drink so much that you were a little wobbly? Yeah, probably. I mean, whatever happened to Brett Kavanaugh when he was drunk is the same thing that happened to other people when they get drunk, right? I mean, this is what happens when, when people get drunk. But they're trying to twist this into some type of a scandal. Because, oh, you know, if he lied about this, well, then he's lying about everything else, right? Oh, he must have, he must have done this. He didn't lie about his drinking. He admitted to his drinking. And again, nobody asked Dr. Ford questions about her drinking, about her history of blacking out, about her history of maybe remembering things uh, that didn't happen or hallucinating or fantasizing or, or forgetting things that did happen. All the questions are about Brett Kavanaugh, and she just gets a complete pass. In fact, probably one of the most ridiculous stories that I read or heard is this college dean who put out a tweet about that Swetnick, the woman who claims that you know she witnessed 10 gang rapes committed by Kavanaugh and his buddies, and she was a victim of one of those rapes, right? So she has this ridiculous allegation that's complete nonsense. And so this dean at some Catholic uh, college uh, tweets something out about it. And I'm going to read the exact tweet. Right? Swetnick is 55 years old. Kavanaugh is 52 years old, or since when do senior girls hang out with freshman boys? If it happened when Kavanaugh was a senior, Swetnick was an adult drinking with, and by her own admission, having sex with underage boys. In another universe, he would be the victim and she would be the perp. That's a perfectly valid observation. I made that observation myself. In fact, not only was she you know, drinking and having sex with underage kids, she was basically an accomplice to rape. She was sitting by and watching, you know, all these rapes taking place, party after party. She never reported it to anybody. She never warned anybody. As far as I'm concerned, if she actually witnessed as an adult all these underage boys gang raping girls and drinking alcohol and she didn't report it, she didn't warn anybody, she is an accessory to those crimes. She's an accessory to those rapes, right? Maybe we should bring her up on charges. What is the statute of limitations? I don't know. But because of this a tweet, the guy got suspended, basically fired. He lost his job. And the college said that this was a terrible tweet 
And everybody said it was insensitive to the victim. Insensitive to the victim. Well, first of all, who said Swetnick was, is a victim of anything? She says it. She claims it. What if she's lying? Is she still a victim? So you have to be insensitive to victims, even if they're not really victims. Even if they're lying, you have to be sensitive. I mean, come on. This, is, this whole thing is ridiculous. You don't have to be sensitive. You just have to, you know. And this wasn't even an insensitive tweet. It was just a, a, a point that was being made. Something was being thrown out there. Now, if Swetnick is lying, who's the victim? She's not the victim. Kavanaugh is the victim. If somebody accuses you falsely of doing something, of committing a crime, the person who is accused falsely is the victim. The person making the false accusation, right, they are the criminal, right? They're the one that's doing something wrong. Of course, you can put out all the bad tweets you want about what a horrible person Brett Kavanaugh is. You can criticize him all you want, and he may very well be a victim, but it doesn't matter. Right? You can say all the bad stuff you want, but say one thing bad about somebody who's probably making a false accusation and it's not even that bad and all of a sudden, oh no, you're fired, you're insensitive to this person. This is part of the problem. We are encouraging, with this attitude, we are encouraging more false accusations you know, from women against men. We are empowering women with this superpower to be able to simply accuse men and now, you know, and now they're believed, right? You can't doubt them. You can't criticize them. This is a, a tremendous power. And for people to say, oh, women, women don't accuse men of rape uh, falsely. Of course they do. There's an old expression, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And believe me, you know, a lot of women are scorned. A lot of men are jerks sometimes when it comes to women. And one of the ways that women can get back at a man who she thinks was a jerk to her is by falsely accusing the man of rape. And of course, you know, there are women who commit crimes. I mean, women commit fraud, extortion. I mean, there are women's prisons. Women are in jail. It's not just men that are willing to break the law. And women can extort a lot of things from a man by falsely accusing him of rape. After all, it's her word against his word. And of course, there is a, a tendency sometimes to believe the woman when she cries rape. In fact, I think women have been crying rape falsely as long as men have been raping them. I mean, this is just something that happens. But now all of a sudden, we are empowering the women to know that they are going to be believed no matter how little evidence or even if there's no evidence uh, to substantiate it. And so this is going to increase the frequency with which men are victimized by women who are falsely accusing them of rape. And in fact, I just found out just, just now, I'm reading this article, that an ex-boyfriend of this woman has now come forward and says that he remembers when he had a relationship with this woman, and he said that he didn't actually get as far as sex because when he found out what she was into, it was too kinky for him because she told him that she was into group sex, that she liked to have sex with more than one man at a time, preferably multiple male partners. And she asked this guy who was a former weatherman and a former Democratic candidate for office. So the guy's a Democrat. And so she asked this guy if it would be okay with him if he participated in group sex with her and a bunch of other guys. Now, I mean, look, if, if a girl told me that, I don't blame the guy. I mean, I don't want to have sex uh, with uh, multiple men. I mean, even one more man. I mean, that's not a threesome. That's a halfsome. I mean, most guys, you know, wouldn't want to be involved in a threesome that involved another guy. But she didn't just want to be in a threesome. She wanted a foursome, a fivesome, where it's all guys, and she's the only girl. And in fact, according to this guy, she told him that the first time she tried group sex and liked it was in high school. And so she kept doing it. Now, she never told this guy that she was raped that she was gang raped or train raped or whatever it was, all she told him about consensual sex that she had with multiple partners simultaneously. And shouldn't we just believe him? I mean, he's saying it. He put it in writing. I mean, he's, he, he's saying that this would happen. Why, why, should, why should this guy's statements be any less believed than her statements? You just have two people making statements. Now, if anything... This guy's got no reason to come forward. I mean, what's in it for him? What's the rationale? I mean, what's his benefit, right? I mean, he's just doing what he thinks is right. 
he hears somebody saying something that's false and now he wants to come out now is it possible he's just you know mad at this woman maybe she dumped him and so he is just making this up of course it's possible but it's also possible that she's making it up people make up stuff all the time people get accused falsely all the time that's why we have trials that's why we don't just convict people based on an accusation i mean if people only made truthful accusations then we wouldn't need trials we wouldn't need juries we would just have somebody making an accusation and then that would be it we just go right to the sentencing but it's because people say things that aren't true. It's because people accuse other people falsely, either deliberately or they're just mistaken, that we have this whole fact-finding process that we call due process, which you know the Democrats want to toss aside just like they've done with the rest of the Constitution. But this is really a camel's nose under the tent. And I can see the direction that we're now headed as a result of this. And we are going into in a direction, into a place that nobody really wants to go.